Well, good evening, everyone. I noticed I wasn't here last week, and we had Thanksgiving, and I noticed we switched the countdown over to candles. So what do you guys think? Does it make you more relaxed, or does it just remind you of bedtime? But that being said, I hope you guys are all doing good tonight. Looks like we got some winter weather coming in, snow the next couple days, so I hope you all are ready to stay warm. I wonder if it's going to ever turn to winter here in Wyoming. I'm a big fan of winter, and as you can tell through the small talk, I'm really trying to avoid the opening of Deuteronomy 23, because this chapter gets real awkward real quick. So that being said, that's where we're going tonight, and that's where we're uh, starting off, Deuteronomy 23. And while it does seem like there's a, uh, a bunch of kind of random rules and law, you, I think you can break the uh, chapter down basically split it right in half between purity and then kind of communal living or community laws. And through that, I think we can develop a couple principles. First of all, I think we can see or begin to understand the intense amount of work through the life and death of Jesus that was done on our behalf. And then second... I think we can also see how seriously God takes the treatment and the possession of his different resources. So that being said, let's dive right into the awkward here and start off in verse 1. So no one who has testicles who are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Yeah, I tried warning you guys. <laughs> I tried warning you. And so commonly, you'll see this expressed elsewhere as someone being a eunuch. Someone whose male reproductive abilities are removed from them, either accidentally or on purpose. And there's a couple of different, there's a couple different points here in this verse. And the first one is the idea of the assembly of the Lord and what does that mean? These eunuchs being removed from the assembly of the Lord. And we'll see that further down where it's the illegitimate children are removed from the assembly of the Lord. The Moabites and the Ammonites can't be in the assembly of the Lord. And then the Egyptians and the Edomites being happen to wait a certain amount of generations before they can be included in the assembly of the Lord. And a lot of people think that means they can't be accepted into the community. But when we look at the wording of this passage that we're about to read, I think this is more talking about being able to participate in the official forms of worship through the feast, through the Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Pentecost. I think those are what is being referred to as assembly of the Lord because we see later in the passage, he gives a time frame in which they're allowed to actually participate in these things for other considerations. In that time frame, if they were completely cut off from Israel, there would be no way for them to meet that generational time frame. So these eunuchs were not allowed to necessarily partake in temple worship is basically what this is saying. They couldn't be in the presence of God, is the idea here. And that's a pretty dramatic statement for an Israelite, 
But there's a couple of different reasons why God would make such a rule at this time for the people of Israel. First off, pagan worship by the surrounding communities was usually attended to in some form or another through eunuchs. And not only in the worship or the practice of worship, but also in the high courts of the local kings and all that. And so a identifying or distinguishing mark of a pagan society or one that was not Israelite was the presence of eunuchs throughout their, throughout their basically societal structure. And we can see this kind of play out later in the Bible when we see the guys Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, more than likely, even though the Bible doesn't expressly state it, more than likely due to their taken as slaves into Babylon and put into the service of the Babylonian king, more than likely those four individuals were also made eunuchs moving forward because it was common. And eunuchs are a very common kind of idea throughout the Bible. But then also there's a sense here that when we look down farther and we go through this passage, that the Lord is very... To enter into his presence, he's very aware of a certain level of purity that is necessary for all the individuals. And so if an individual has lost his ability to perform his created function as a man, then that is something that wasn't, at that point, that becomes something perverse, something different and something not capable of being in the presence of the Lord because he can only stand in the presence of absolute holiness and purity. And we see that through the practices of the priests where they have to even take safeguards where if they accidentally mess up within their worship ceremony, they got a rope tied around them. So if they accidentally drop dead, they can at least pull them out of there without someone having to go in there and retrieve them. And so likewise, we're being introduced to this idea of the Lord needing to, and I shouldn't say introduced because it's all throughout Deuteronomy, but in this chapter, it starts off kind of blunt to us because the idea of a eunuch is something that is not so common anymore, but it gives us the idea of the exactness that the Lord requires when you're going to approach him in worship. And so going into verse 2, it says, No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. And again, illegitimate children were forever basically banned for the participation of temple worship. Now it says the tenth generation but explains further down what that it means. That, that number 10th generation basically means forever. It's an, it's an idea of completeness. That illegitimate union and the bloodline that's going to be a result from that are forever going to be cut off, not from the nation, but being able to approach God during official worship. And then going in verse 3, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way 
When you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you, but the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all of your days forever. And so now we see, first we saw someone who was physically maimed, who was prevented from temple worship. Then we see next someone who was born illegitimately through a union, and now we have entire nations of people that are prevented from ever being able to be fully accepted into that new promised land that they're getting ready to go into. And so, in all fairness, the Ammonite and Moabites weren't supposed to be existing around too much longer after this anyways. But that being said, we see God is one who kind of, I, won't, I don't want to say holds a grudge, but he remembers. And he definitely remembers when his people were treated unfairly. And this has permanent consequences. And all three of these examples that we just listed has an extended consequence forever that makes the obstacle between the full worship and acceptance by God insurmountable. And so moving into verse 7, it says, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you are a sojourner in his land. Children born of them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So now we have two nations that are, I call them neutral, because the Edomites didn't bug them too much when they were going through. They did go out and threaten them. But when, if you remember in Numbers, they went out, threatened them, so the uh, Israelites bypassed them on their way to the promised land. And they spent a long time in Israel leading up to the, to the exodus. And so again, we see an example of the Lord remembering and providing a temporary injunction to where there has to be some form of, I don't know if immersion is the right word, or assimilation. But there's a three-generation timeline there for those people to be able to enter into full worship of God. And so what we're seeing here in these verses could cause many to fear. And the reason why is because we see an absolute point of cutoff from the worship and the approach of God. We see an absolute cutoff from being able to enter into his presence. And now we even see accidental or normal functions that can limit us in the way we approach the Lord. Starting in verse 9, it says, When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp, he shall not come inside the camp. But when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. 
you shall have a place outside the camp and you shall not go or and you shall go out into it and you shall have a trowel with your tools and when you sit down outside you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp you deliver to deliver you and give up your enemies before you therefore your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. And so now we have almost involuntary bodily functions preventing individuals from being in the presence of the Lord. So we start out with the extreme, the eunuch, and we're moving down the list to different nations, and now we're going into where these people are lined up to go to war, and things that cannot necessarily be controlled are preventing them from being in the presence of the Lord and actually being labeled as unclean and unholy and evil, which that term evil has a lot of different, different meanings. We can go over that at another time. But the point being we should be looking at this and, in be, and it should draw us to an absolute idea of awe and wonder of the full work of Jesus Christ and what that meant for us. That he was able to, our God is so detailed in his holiness. He's so holy, he's so pure, he's so amazing that basically there are things that can prevent us from permanently being in his presence. And the work of Christ on the cross was so complete and did such a work on us and changed our view or God's view of us so much that not only are we able to approach him, he is now able to come and indwell us. And so it completely changed the dynamic. It wasn't even a level of, can we now go see him? Can we go see where he's at? The work of Christ was so amazing that now he is with us permanently. There isn't a location that we have to worry about being cut off from. He is now permanently here within us when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so we can get kind of wrapped around the axle about the different terms used here and what does that mean and what did that mean for the Israelites. But at least for us, we know that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, these things no longer disqualify us. These things no longer prevent us. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter if it was accidental or intentional how your body has been mutilated. It doesn't matter the things that you're most ashamed of that you would try to hide from everyone that would previously cause you to expose yourself and walk outside the camp and have to spend an entire day out there and come back in and get cleaned up. Those things now are irrelevant for us. And so... Knowing God is so detailed in the way in which we can approach him and the way in which we have to present ourselves 
in these passages and know the freedom that we have now where he dwells among us should bring us to a sense of amazement or at least a sense of awe in truly understanding the fullness of the work that was done on that cross on our behalf. So that being said, we go into... I kind of call them community rules, but a lot of this is about theft and the idea of not stealing the commandment, thou shalt not steal. And we'll see starting in verse 15, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from, from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. And now more than likely this is talking about, especially going right from the passage about war camps, more than likely this is talking about slaves that have come over from enemy nations or surrounding nations. But this passage doesn't give us any direct, distinct idea of that. But if it is from enemy nations, like we talked about before, it kind of ties in with that first verse with the eunuchs here, because more than likely a slave coming over from one of these surrounding areas was coming over mutilated in some form or some shape or form. But the point is being is that just because he was a slave somewhere else, when he comes into the city or he comes into town, doesn't mean that you get to use this person or abuse this person as a slave. That when they come to you, they find safe haven and they're allowed to live freely and they're allowed to live openly. 17 says... None of the daughters of Israel shall be a, a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment of any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord. And so we know that the Lord does not authorize sexual acts as a form of worship. And so any, the existence of a cult prostitute in any realm of society or anywhere, anywhere you would find it automatically ties into the idea of that paganism that's surrounding the nation of Israel right now that is constantly threatening them. So he starts off with, it's not allowed. It's not going to happen. But more importantly, the wages that are earned from that are not going to be used in religious worship. So even if it does exist, this is not an acceptable thing to bring into the temple. And if we're getting into the idea of vows, and if we're going to tie this into the idea of following of theft, we could see how a cult prostitute, at least in the nation of Israel, could be viewed by God as a form of theft. Taking a possession of his and offering it and dedicating it to something else besides his service and his worship and his glory can kind of be translated as an idea of at least stealing from God. And especially when we get into the the not charging interest and the vows that are following here, theft seems to be the predominant kind of idea running through this passage. So starting in verse 19, 
You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And so God is expressly forbidding here the idea of lending money to a fellow Israelite one of his children, part of the inheritance, and taking advantage of that individual to make yourself rich. That's seen as a form of theft to God. That's something that is not appropriate within the realm of one Israelite to another. Now, he does allow it for foreigners, and that's a completely acceptable kind of idea for someone who comes in and needs a loan from another nation. But dealing one Israelite to another, they're all equally inheriting, or they're all equally the seed of Abraham. They're all part of the same inheritance. And so for one to charge another extra for his portion of the inheritance can be seen as a form of theft because you're basically taking an extra portion of inheritance from someone else within the community. Starting in verse 21, it says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You, be, you shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And again, this goes into the idea of something that you would owe to the Lord. You make a vow. You say, I'm going to give God A, B, and C, or just A, or whatever, whatever the terms are. Whatever promise is made there, well, God is going to require that of you. Why? Because that vow is made voluntarily. Like he says there in verse uh, 22, but if you refrain from vowing, you'll not be guilty of sin. So if you never said it, you just be careful about what you say or what you speak, then there's no, there's no possibility of punishment. There's no worry of, of having to There's no worry of having to fulfill that vow. But once the vow is made, that thing that you vow now belongs to the Lord. So if you're not fulfilling that vow, you are now stealing from God. You are taking the thing that you originally intended to be giving to the Lord, and you are now using it for some other purpose. And we can kind of see that idea in the New Testament when Jesus was getting on the Pharisees and they were what they were doing was when instead of giving an inheritance or giving or helping out their parents, they were saying, well, no, this gift belongs to God. And so whatever I would have given you, I can't because I'm using it for worship. And that's where we see the violation of that principle back here in Deuteronomy of if you say it, you better follow through with it because God's going to require that from you. And then going into verse 24, 
If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not pit, put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. And basically what this is saying here is that we're all to share. The crops were to be shared to a certain extent as if someone's hungry, someone's walking or traveling, they're able to eat, pull grain, pull fruit from a vineyard. But you're not allowed to harvest your neighbor's, neighbor's crop. You can't take his hard work as your own possession. So you can fill up your hand if you're moving through the country and you need food or you need sustenance. You can pursue that, but as soon as you start harvesting your neighbor's crop and you start using it and storing it, you're now guilty of theft. And so what that means for us, or at least in this passage, is that the things that belong to God are extremely important to God. And the things that you vow to God, God is going to require it of you. Now, we may be looking around and kind of saying to ourselves, okay, sounds good. I keep all my vows to God. But when we look at what the Bible says concerning what Jesus' sacrifice on the cross did for us, I think it would give us a deeper kind of idea and meaning to what actually belongs to God. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. That is good and acceptable and perfect. As soon as we come to that cross, and as soon as we come before it, and accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we accept that price that was paid on our behalf, we have to realize that we have now entered into that property of God. Like we went over not too long ago in 2 Corinthians where it talks about we are the temple of God. So we shouldn't do anything to defile it. Likewise, we are the possession of God. Paul says he uses this example as a way to talk on earthly terms so we may understand it. But he still uses that as an example where he says we were bought for a price. We are slaves under the Lord. And so when we look at these verses that talk about whatever you vow, you better be willing to keep. It kind of reminds me when Jesus was talking in Luke where he was talking about no man goes to war without looking at the battlefield and counting, or counting the troops. No man builds a tower without counting the cost. When we come to Christ, we have to realize we are now his. We are now that possession of the Lord that has been vowed, that has been promised. 
And if we're doing or we're living in such a way that isn't putting on that new self, then maybe it might be healthy for us to start looking at that as we're actually stealing from God. We are misusing one of his resources that has been reserved for his worship. Now, I don't want you guys to think that I'm talking a legalistic term where you need to go home scared or in fear and be like, oh my God, I'm stealing from God. What am I going to do? But again, going back to fully understanding that full price that Jesus paid to provide us the capability of unlimited access to the Father, to Him, and to the Holy Spirit, and realizing what we're now called to, as Ephesians 4, 20-24 says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and true holiness. We don't have to fear all these little details that used to get in the way of worship of God. We don't have to fear accidentally being maimed in a way that would permanently cut us off from corporate worship. We don't have to fear being born into the wrong nation. We don't have to fear any of that stuff because of the work Jesus did. But part of that work is putting on that new self of righteousness and holiness created after the likeness of God. And once we put that on, there's a recognition there that this came at a cost. And again, this cost isn't something to put you in fear. This is a, a point of reverence and respect where we realize that we are now part of his holy family, part of his holy possessions, and those resources need to be dedicated towards the spreading of his gospel and the spreading of his message. Because if not, then how are we, How are we to prove to the world that great and wonderful hope that he's given us if his own people, his own possession is just viewed as being squandered away? You're just, a, you're just another person. You just happen to kind of live or believe or do something different. But the way in which we stand out is when we start acting and living like we are that distinct property belonging to him and used for a particular service out of respect and out of reverence for that initial work that bridged all those gaps that previously would have separated us from him and his worship. So what does that mean for us?
What does that mean today? What do we do with that? Well, I think as Christians, the fact that we're here now able to lift our hands in worship, knowing that we come in here and knowing when we pray that he hears us, we should be thankful every day for those obstacles being removed. No longer having to go through that purification ritual. And he did that for us. He didn't do that because God was just like, oh, I'm going to make these set of rules where people can't approach me. I don't want to see any eunuchs around here. It was in response to his holiness and him seeing that there were constant obstacles to approaching that holiness that he sent his son. And that should cause us great thanks when we read stuff like this. When we read like chapter 23 of Deuteronomy, thank God we don't have to live in that. Thank God that we are in the age where his dispensation came through his son and we are now capable of having constant relationship with him. That is such an amazing thing that I think we can take for granted. But also, now that we are his, are we misusing those resources that he's given us? Whether you want to call them talents from the gospel or you just want to call them yourself, you as a person. Are we actually focusing on that vow we made to God through, reprint, through repentance and acceptance of his son as savior in which we feel we are adequately using those resources. And again, as someone who suffers from a ton of anxiety, I know how these words can sound and can put fear into people's mind. And that's not where I'm trying to go on this. Where I'm trying to lead you is in the hopeful idea of that starting tonight, starting tomorrow, you can wake up in the morning and you can say, I'm going to use these resources for the gospel. I'm going to use myself for the gospel. I'm no longer going to misuse these gifts and these talents that have been given to me for earthly or fleshly desires, I'm going to actually put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. But on the other side of it, if you're a non-Christian, you're someone in here that doesn't know Jesus, we live in this new modern age and it's kind of a complete reversal from what we read here in Deuteronomy. Where back then, if things weren't going right, it was a mystery on what you had to do to appease God or whatever God you were serving. How do we get the rain to fall? How do we get our children to be born? How do we get our flocks to grow? And you always felt like it was a mystery on how it was you were supposed to approach God to get the response that you were wanting, to get the blessing and the hope that you were needing. Now we've almost reversed it. 
where we forgot, I think we've forgotten as a society, and especially as a non-Christian society, the exact requirements of purity and holiness that God required for you to approach him. And we just flippantly kind of throw that off, even to the point where people talk pridefully. And you hear, you hear stupid statements of, God sounds boring. Hell's going to be where all my friends are at. And act as if you have a choice on whether or not you could approach God, as if he's waiting for you to accept him and actually understanding the fact that Jesus Christ is the one that removed all those obstacles. So the reason why you even have the ability to pridefully approach God in a non-Christian manner is because you're so used to seeing the freedom of Christians of all the obstacles that Jesus Christ has removed from or all that Jesus Christ removed from you in worship and approaching God. And that should bring you again to an idea of awe and reverence. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, realize that the reason why you can even approach him now or you have the option to approach him now is because of that work and that beforehand, even if you wanted to come to God, you had all these lists of regulations and obligations that were getting in your way that prevented you. So I would suggest that you take that opportunity to realize how direct that path it is and you actually do approach him. So I'm getting ready to close in prayer. And Dougie's going to come up and close us out in worship. But that being said, if you're a brother or sister in Christ, how are you using those resources? That's a question for you to answer. You don't owe me that answer. That's something that you got to look at in yourself and, and realize. Would God have an argument for him to say, you're stealing from me? You've made this vow and you're no longer keeping it. If you're a non-Christian, I don't think you realize how truly far from God you were and are in the incredible work that was done on your behalf to smooth that path and to make that road straight to him. So that being said, let's close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you so much for your word. We pray that you remind us that we are your holy possessions. While that offers us tremendous hope and security, also allow us to remember that we were bought with a price. And that demands us to honor that possession and use it wisely. Thank you so much for the incredible work you did on the cross in which we were able to be acceptable before you, God 
as there are no limitations on now on access and relationship and in which we can confidently approach you without concern for purity or lineage. Thank you so much again for all the work that Jesus Christ did. In his name we pray. Amen.